Welcome, happy warriors. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, your rabbi, revealing how the world really works. That's right. And one of the ways the world really works is that improvement, uplift, and good times can actually emerge from dark and gloomy circumstances. Even though when we are in the midst of the troubling times, it seems as if there can be no tomorrow, no sunrise at the end of the dark night. But the truth is that there is, not inevitably, but it can happen. However, there are certain essentials, there are prerequisites in order to turn dark times into bright times and to turn trouble into happiness and gloom into hope. For instance, it is of crucial importance not to settle for where we are. We absolutely have to be able to absorb into our beings our utter and wholehearted rejection of the present as in any way acceptable. That is a lot harder than it sounds. And I'm going to give you some examples, not in order to make anyone feel bad. I mean, if I, if it turns out that you think I'm talking about you, obviously your brain tells you I'm not, but it's almost inevitable that some of the things that I'm speaking about will hit home for you because you, by definition, as a listener of this show, and if you've stuck with it as long as this, then you are already qualified as somebody who is not necessarily happy with things as they are, content with current circumstances, and willing to settle. Now, It is not an easy thing to do, to decide that I am in a place that I don't like. This is not any good, and I really, really mean it, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get out of it. Look, this is very hard to do, because one of the features that God built into us is the ability to get used to almost anything, especially if we slid into the circumstances gradually. So let me give some tragic examples. If you are a 47-year-old single, never married, childless man or woman, you're not in a good place. And I'm sure you feel it particularly poignantly at this time. But most of the time, let's face it, you make the best of it. And you've almost always, not always, but most of the time, you've just accepted it as your reality. You slid into it gradually. Initially, you were in looking mode. You wanted to find somebody to spend the rest of your life with. But there was always a reason, and each year it wasn't quite the right time to do this. You were having a good time, or you were busy with your career, and you made the mistake 
of thinking that careers are forever when the truth is only families are. And time went by. And before you know it, here you are, 47 years old, and not in a good place. Let me give you a second example. I'm going to give you five from what I think of as five F's, right? So family, that's one bad place. How about financial? You're financially stressed. You're living from paycheck to paycheck. Too much of your income goes on payments to credit cards and car loans and other debts. Look, it's a terrible situation. Sometimes you feel it acutely. If you wake up in the middle of the night, it's hard to get back to sleep. It keeps you awake. But most of the time, it's just your reality. You just accept it. And I say that because if it was not, you wouldn't be able to do anything except do something to resolve this terrible circumstance. You certainly wouldn't be able to sit and watch a movie or play a game or even go for a hike. You'd be saying to yourself, I cannot spend even a minute doing anything that does not directly tackle the problem of improving my situation. Since you occasionally do watch a movie and since you occasionally go for a hike, obviously it doesn't worry you as much as it should. In other words, you've accepted your current situation as your reality. Number three, let's say you've slid into a lonely, friendless existence. It didn't happen overnight. You know, you used to just, you found, you, you found that you, 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 you found it more enjoyable to just spend an evening alone watching television or reading a book. And at the beginning, as you sort of started moving into this um, isolated and, and uh, uh, lonely situation, uh, friends used to reach out and they'd call you, hey, we haven't seen you for a while. But you gave back so little that eventually they stopped calling. And by then it kind of didn't really worry you, except every now and then. If every now and then when you saw a happy group of people having fun, or you saw people together with friends, or you looked at old photo albums and you saw the many friends you used to have that you're out of touch with, but by and large, you accept your situation. How about number three? You're in bad shape. You're in physically awful shape. You huff and puff your way up the stairs. Your worst enemy is the scales. You don't even want to know your weight because it just gets you upset because you know it's much too high. It's so bad, you don't even watch your diet anymore. You just eat anything. And you don't even like looking at yourself in the mirror. You try, whenever you walk past a mirror in your bathroom, you look the other way so as not to see yourself because you realize you've let yourself go. By and large, you kind of have accepted it as your reality, because if that were not true, you wouldn't be able to do a thing other than focus on fixing it. But you've accepted it. Finally, the fifth one, although it should have been first, is faith. 
you've slid out of any connection with God. It wasn't always like this, but it happened gradually. Little by little, whether it was you stopped going to church or synagogue, whether you began to lose contact with your friends who were people of faith, whatever it is, maybe you yourself started praying less and less. Maybe you started feeling awkward and embarrassed talking to God. But whatever it was, it happened gradually. And you kind of accepted it. It was okay. And today, you don't think about it so much. You don't go as far as calling yourself an atheist or agnostic. You haven't You haven't labeled it. You haven't acknowledged it. But it's just no longer a part of anything that brings joy to your life. In all of these dreadfully sad circumstances, there are three vitally important common features. But first, why do I say sad? Well, because a tragedy is something awfully painful, and it's usually irreparable. And above all, it did not have to be this way. Right? The terror attacks of 9-11 were a tragedy. You know why? Because it didn't have to happen. If our country was doing what it should have been doing, if the intelligence agencies, if Congress and the government, if everybody had not slid into a party-like complacency, it shouldn't have happened. It was a tragedy. It didn't have to be. World War One and its continuation, World War Two, a tragedy. World War One did not have to happen. And if World War One wouldn't have happened, neither would World War Two. Uh, that, that, that was a tragedy. The coronavirus, the, the great epidemic of 2020, uh, not a tragedy. Because, what do you mean it didn't have to happen? It, it happened. Unless it turns out that government and bureaucratic bungling could have avoided it. I, I, we're too soon in, in it now. We don't know yet. But ordinarily, it's an act of God. It happened. But it's not as if we could have avoided it. If we could have, that would make it a tragedy. One of um, uh, a tragic figure, Marilyn Monroe, one of her husbands uh, was a, uh, a very skilled writer, playwright called Arthur Miller. And uh, I think his best play ever, in my view, uh, was a huge tragedy. It was called Death of a Salesman, a real tragedy. It was it's just it, it's too painful for words. You you read the play or or you watch it even worse, and it just you know, you just you get a lump in your throat if you think about it. It's just it's tragic. Shakespeare wrote uh, tragic plays, Othello, Macbeth, Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, King Lear. Come to think of it, he wrote, he wrote a lot of tragedies. But um, so did the old Greeks. And if you think of movies, many movies are structured as tragedies because we human beings find those things deeply moving, excepting in our own lives. 
because in our own lives we commit the fatal flaw of accepting the situation, accepting the predicament, settling for the pain. We just get used to it. Try this experiment with somebody who you know very well and who trusts you. Blindfold them and press a needle against the skin on their arm. And they'll say, oh, what are you doing? And you'll say, you tell me what I am doing. And they'll say, well, you're, you're pricking me with something. Now, be careful not, while this conversation is going on, don't relinquish the needle. Keep the exactly the same pressure you did when you first touched it against their skin. And, um, and then after a few moments, it'll be perfectly clear to you that your blindfolded friend is no longer feeling the pin pricking him or her. So increase the pressure just a little bit. Oh, you did it again! And retain the pressure there, but talk to them to distract them. And after a few moments, they will obviously not be feeling it anymore. And that might be a good time to end it. However, when this was done to me uh, for the first time, um, the, the, the person who was doing it, I trusted, and, and I think they had a reason. I know they had a reason for wanting me to really understand this aspect of how God created us. And uh, I don't mean to uh, uh, gross you out or anything, but I was blindfolded and she, um, she grabbed a fold of my skin and I, I, she said, what am I doing? I said, you're squeezing, you're pinching my arm. And then she uh, said, now what am I doing? I said, hey, ouch, you're pricking me with a pin or a needle or something. That's sore. And then she spoke to me and then, uh, then I said, oh, you did it again. See, but she hadn't really done it again. She had just kept up the pressure. What was really happening was that I was getting used to it. Do you hear what I'm saying? I was getting used to the pain and didn't, it wasn't hurting me anymore. And then she did it again. And I said, ouch, you did it a third time. Well, not to gross you out, but eventually she uh, took the blindfold off. And I honestly, I nearly lost my lunch. I nearly threw up because that needle was poked neatly all the way through the fold of skin she was holding between her thumb and her forefinger. That's right. She had poked it right through. Now, this took several times. And each time I thought, to me, it felt like a separate prick. I didn't realize the needle was actually going through my skin. Uh, it's a, the point was made. If we do nothing, our bodies accustom themselves to the pain. We accept the pain and it becomes our new acceptable reality. And that is a sure way to condemn yourself to perpetual stagnation whether it's in finances, whether it's in friendships, whether it's in fitness, whether it is in faith, whatever it is, acceptance of the pain, so as you no longer even feel it, is a sure way 
to make certain that you will never improve or change. And so in all of these five tragic circumstances I described with a hypothetical person who was... um, who had no family and had not built a family, uh, somebody with financial problems, uh, friendship absence, a friendship famine, uh, fitness, bad, f- bad fitness shape, faith. In all of these, these are tragic because they didn't have to be that way. Number one, Here are the three, remember I said there are three important common features in all these five tragic circumstances. Number one, you made the early mistake or mistakes that resulted in today's painful reality. Whatever you are feeling, whatever pain you're in, whatever isn't right in your life, the odds are that they can be traced to a bad decision or many bad decisions you made sometime in the past. Today's problems are the result of yesterday's bad decisions. And unless you do something about it, starting off with forcing yourself to confront, accept, and even embrace the reality that it is unacceptable, then tomorrow promises to be exactly the same as today. And you know that today was just the same as yesterday, and that is a tragedy. And so number one is you made the early mistake or sequence of mistakes that resulted in where you are. Number two, your circumstances deteriorated slowly, ever so slowly, from bad to worse. Gradually, incrementally, you didn't notice each individual slide or drop or step. You see, you were never hit by an avalanche. That would have been better. It would have been different. You'd have been galvanized into action. The avalanche hit you and attacked you and destroyed you, and you'd pick yourself up and you'd throw yourself into battle and you'd do something about it because it came suddenly. But when things deteriorate in our lives gradually, we accept them. That's the pin. If somebody tried to push a pin through my arm right away, I would explode into violent reaction. You can bet it. You can depend on that. But when it's done slowly and gradually, I get used to the pain and eventually I stop feeling it. And point number three, you don't like your life. You're not happy with it. But you don't really dislike it enough to do that tough things necessary to rescue yourself. You've accepted your reality. And that is the most tragic thing of all. How do we deal with this? Well, think of everything that the Hebrew people have endured for not hundreds, but thousands of years. Egypt was the start 3,300 years ago. Oppressive slavery. And then the Babylonians destroyed Israel, killed huge numbers, and took the rest off as slaves. And then a few hundred years later, the Romans came and did the same thing, carted them off as slaves, exiled them, destroyed their land. 
and then followed nearly 40 generations, father to son, son to son, grandson to grandson, 40 generations of pogroms, massacres, oppression, genocide, culminating, of course, in a few million people of my relatives being gassed and incinerated with calm, industrialized efficiency during World War II. If you read uh, great writer James Michener, James Michener wrote a book called Poland, and you get a sense of how your life was upended when Cossacks stormed your little Polish village. They killed a quarter of all the Jews in the village, including your closest and dearest relatives and family members. They destroyed your property and your livelihood. You survived, but you got to begin life all over again. How did they do it? And this often happened more than once in one man's lifetime. How did they do it? And the answer is, they took recourse in the book of Exodus. Think about the book of Exodus. You ask yourself, why is so much of a Bible devoted to the story of the Israelites, the Hebrews, enslaved in Egypt, and their ultimate redemption when God brought about the Exodus at the hand of Moses? Don't you think, I mean, you know, a lot of things happen to a people, and yet this one is highlighted, and it goes on for more than 12 chapters. That's a lot of ink devoted to one incident in a long and not uneventful history. So why that? Because, my friends, in ancient Jewish wisdom, the story of the book of Exodus is not a historic narrative about anachronistic events involving obscure and long-forgotten nations. No. It is a handbook of personal redemption. And like any effective program, it has to have actions that help accelerate the absorbing of the lesson. To just absorb ideas into your head is not going to bring about any real change. Let me give you an example. Let us imagine I'm on my way to uh, a city. I have to visit a city with a not particularly savory reputation with respect to crime. And I'm thinking about, you know, um, I'm going to be having to go from meeting to meeting, from hotel to uh, another meeting. And uh, this is a dangerous city with a lot of crime. I don't really know anything about self-defense. So at the airport bookstore, before I get on my flight, I buy a book called 20 Lessons in Self-Defense. And on the plane, I read through it. Now, hey, this is, this is really interesting. And um, I uh, come to the city, and the first night I'm, I'm, uh, I leave a meeting and, or a restaurant. I'm on my way back to the hotel. I decide to walk. All of a sudden, an arm comes around my neck from behind me. I feel an object poking me in the ribs, and the person says to me, uh, give me your money, or I'm going to shoot you. 
And I say to him, hold on a sec. Hey, just take it easy. I'm going, I need my hand. I'm going to reach into my pocket. In my pocket, I have a book on self-defense. And I happen to remember that chapter 17 was how to defend yourself against attacks from the rear. And I just need to look that up. And then I'll be able to deal with you on an equal footing person says, I have no intention of dealing with you on an equal footing. That's why I have a gun in your ribs, and I'm about to pull the trigger if you don't quickly give me your wallet. And I suddenly realize that knowing something in your brain is very different from getting it into your heart. If instead of simply reading that book, I had spent one evening a week for four years in a training program, with a master teacher, and I had learnt all of these techniques. At that point, this poor, unfortunate guy who had the terribly bad luck to attack me in the street one night would suddenly discover that he unleashed a whirlwind that was probably going to take his life. But that's because I had absorbed into my being the intuitive and instinctive reactions to any set of painful circumstances. But just to know it in my brain doesn't work. And so the Exodus system set up what I call an annual inoculation against stagnation. And that is, in fact, what we know as the Passover Seder, which is due to take place on Wednesday night, the 8th of April, 2020. Of course, every year it's on a different civil date, although the Hebrew calendar date stays exactly the same. At any rate, this Passover Seder is an experiential activity. It is not a commemorative thing. It's not a symbolic thing. It is actually an experiential thing to train yourself to overcome this massive obstacle to progress, massive obstacle to self-improvement, which is stagnation. Stagnation is just the word I use to describe the accepting of pain, the acceptance of pain as your new reality. And not until you can overcome that do you stand any hope whatsoever of actually making it out of there and making it possible for people to change and improve and to uplift yourself and promote yourself and elevate yourself so that you can really emerge from the darkness and the gloom into the brightness. But you can only do that if you recognize that the darkness and the gloom is dark and gloomy, not just acceptable as your current reality. And that is why the book of Exodus is so fascinating, because if you look at it carefully through these eyes, you discover that the three common features of tragedy are present there. Number one, the Hebrews made those initial mistakes that allowed the Egyptians, no, encouraged the Egyptians to enslave them. And number two, it happened so very gradually. 
You'll remember that the book of Genesis ends with the Israelites living in Egypt under the very best of conditions, friendly with Pharaoh, in good shape with everybody. And little by little, by the time we get into the first few chapters of Exodus, already the problems are evident and they only got worse and worse, little by little. And then finally to the third point, stagnation. The Israelites, you know, they, they didn't like it, they didn't love it, and every now and then they could definitely be induced to complain, but they didn't dislike it enough to do anything about it. The proof, of course, is that they accepted their condition, they resented Moses, they didn't embrace him as somebody who was going to solve their problems and get them out of Egypt and bring them to a promised land. No! They gave him a very rough time. And even once some of them, and not all of them, but some of them did leave and fall. Don't think all the Israelites left Egypt. They didn't. Uh, the majority of them stayed behind because they had accepted their situation. They said, no matter what this is, it's better than the unknown. And they remained. Those that left several times said to Moses, oh, wish we would have stayed behind. What are you doing? You're just making our lives worse here in the desert. All of the steps that I've been talking about are evident in those chapters of, Je of Exodus, and they are brought to life in the observance of the Passover Seder. Now, many, many people attend group Seders. They're a house of worship, a whole Seders. Many, many churches in the United States, churches around the world hold Seders, uh, many synagogues hold seders. Many groups, social groups, uh, all kinds of groups hold seders uh, because it is an annual inoculation against stagnation. It helps with this most crucial of all things. It helps you overcome the acceptance of the pain as merely normal. And this year, because of the corona epidemic, um, synagogues, churches, groups, nobody's having a big group seder. They can't do it. And so many people are going to do it on their own. And if they're not, I encourage people enormously, I, please go ahead and hold a seder. It's just not that hard. And the benefits are unforgettable. So uh, to that end, what I, I mean, so many people say, oh, it's all very well for you to say it. Uh, I thought, you know what, I'm going to prepare a resource. And sure enough, we have a resource uh, of how to conduct your own Passover Seder. It's in three volumes, and you will see it on my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. And what I'm going to do now is just play you um, the first 10 minutes or so of the program, just so that you get a sense of what it is we are talking about. And then uh, we will wrap up and I'll uh, come back to say farewell. So hold on right there. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and I want to welcome you to my Seder. You are going to hear exactly what the guests and family members are going to hear uh, at my Seder in a couple of weeks' time. You, of course, are free to modify, uh, shorten, or extend uh, your own seder. 
but you will have here in this program everything you need to turn your Seder into something very real. You know, it's so easy to accept your current circumstances as normal, especially when you don't see any way to change it. You kind of know at the back of your mind you could do better. Relationships with family members, relationships with friends, and yes, relationship with God. Your finances could be better. Wait a second. On Passover? Really? Finances have something to do with Passover? Well, yes. Have you heard the term bread of poverty? That is one of the Hebrew names for that indigestible cracker we call matzah. The biblical term for it, bread of poverty, or in Hebrew, lechem oni, sometimes translated as the bread of affliction. But of course, it's not hard to see that poverty is indeed a very grievous affliction. So the Seder puts us on a path from poverty to prosperity. It puts us on a path from diminished and unfulfilled family bonds to the unbreakable and enchanting surge of warmth that comes from close family ties. It addresses sustaining friendships and also real and palpable connection with our Creator. I want you to think of the Seder not as a dusty museum-like reenactment of long-forgotten events and obsolete peoples. No! I want you to think of it as an annual inoculation against stagnation. It helps us reject our current circumstances and commit to new and better ones. This is why everybody needs a Seder. By now, you've downloaded a beautiful free mezuzahstore.com Haggadah from the URL you received from me. You've got this in front of you or any other traditional and authentic Haggadah, and here's how to find your way about. Navigation in the Haggadah which is the roadmap to the Seder experience, navigation is made much easier once you know the 15 steps. 15 steps? That's right. Because tonight is all about progress, change, movement from not good to very good. From the bitter herbs of yesterday to the afikomen of tomorrow. Why 15? Well, 15 is the number in Hebrew numerology that always alludes to moving onwards and upwards. Let me show you. First of all, in the Hebrew month of almost 30 days, 15 days 
is the number of days from new moon to full moon, typically. It is also, well, if we take a look at the book of Psalms, and we take a look at Psalms 120 through 134, that's 15 Psalms, and those 15 Psalms are distinguished by a few words in the introduction in a way that none of the other psalms in the entire book of psalms it's 150 psalms of which 15 have a distinctive quality to them and 135 do not the distinctive quality is that psalms 120 121 122 all the way to 133 and 134 all those 15 psalms begin with the words shir hama'alot, which means the song, a song of the steps. Now, again, uh, translation-wise, you will find many translations that have different words, like, for instance, a song of ascent. Well, ascent is the abstract concept of climbing, of going up. But ma'alot is actually the word for steps. Shir ha'malot, the song of the steps. By the way, in modern Hebrew, an elevator is a ma'alit. Steps are ma'alot, an elevator is a ma'alit. It brings you up. The root of the word is the word ayin lamed al, which means up on, to, to go upwards. And that's why Israel's national airline is called El Al, to up, because we notice that throughout the book of Genesis, when the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, travel to Israel, it always says, and he went up. But when they leave Israel to go somewhere else, for instance, when uh, Jacob went to Egypt, it always says, Vayered, and he went down. And so there is this concept that Israel exists on a higher spiritual plane than any other real estate in the world. And so these 15 psalms uh, start over the words, a song of ascent, or more literally, a song of the steps. Why is that? Well, because in the temple, from the general lower area, to the physically and topologically higher area where the Holy of Holies stood, there were actually 15 steps. That's right. And one psalm, was one of these 15 psalms, was sung at each step as the priests and the Levites would ascend those steps. And so, once again, any time you have an ascent, any time you have a moving upwards... 15 is found. We have 15 generations from Abraham to Solomon, Solomon being the culmination. It was the high point of Jewish history. It was the building of the temple. It was God residing in the Jerusalem temple of David, although Solomon built it. And uh, it was a grand time of Jewish history. And so from the first Hebrew, namely Abraham, to this high peak, uh, the likes of which we've never got back to yet, uh, that was 15 generations. Count them. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, 
and Peretz. Okay, that's the first five. Peretz was the son that Judah had by his daughter-in-law Tamar, and that makes for very interesting reading in the book of Genesis, but I am going to leave that for another day. So, uh, that was one through five. Let's go to number six. Chetzron, Ram, Aminadav, Nachshon, and Salmon. That's ten. By the way, you'll find uh, this chronology of... uh, of uh, genealogy you'll find towards the end of the book of Ruth. Let's go from 11 to 15. Boaz, Oved, Yishai, David, and Solomon. So if you count Abraham number one, Abraham's son Isaac is number two, and so on and so forth, father to son and 15 generations brings you from Abraham to Solomon. God's name himself, the basic structure of God's name, is the letter Yud and the letter He. Uh, the letter Yud has a numerical value of 10, and the letter He has a numerical value of 5. So once again, there you've got 15. So our agenda tonight has 15 steps to it. Now, I'm going to interrupt the uh, Pesach audio, the Passover Seder audio here, uh, because I know you just wanted to get a flavor of it, and uh, it's actually over an hour long, which is far more than uh, I'm sure you'd like to do now. So uh, what I'll do is I'll pick it up again uh, two minutes from the end, two or three minutes from the end, and that way you, you get a flavor of what it's all about. Wishing you a wonderful Passover and a meaningful Seder. Uh, The idea, of course, is that bread is unique to human beings. It requires, number one, deferment of gratification. You've got to figure out, long before you're hungry, that you need to plant wheat and let it uh, ripen, and then you have to harvest it, and you have to convert it into flour, and the flour has to be baked, and only then is the product available. So it's a, a a very advanced and sophisticated human characteristic to be able to defer gratification. The second thing is cooperation. Uh, it takes the cooperation of a number of different people to produce bread. The farmer and the miller and the storekeeper and the baker and all of these people collaborate sometimes knowingly and sometimes unknowingly. All of them nonetheless collaborate in order to put a loaf of bread on my table. And that loaf of bread is fundamental. That's why we think of it as a staple. And it's also why both bread and wine are sacramental to uh, many faiths. They are seriously sacramental. Uh, Bread, because of this special role as the highest level food, and uh, wine, because of its role in the initial fall, shall we say, Uh, of Adam and Eve. So the very first thing we eat uh, is this low-level fruit, uh, excuse me, food, the potato, in the second, uh, in the third agenda item. Uh, We started off with the Kadesh, the sanctification of the wine. We then do washing, which I will discuss in volume two coming right up. 
and um, then we come to eating this low-level food, the potato. And that brings us to agenda item three. Um, It's only at the end, much later in the Seder, that we eat what's called the afikoban, which is a piece of matzah that was prepared earlier on. Again, the idea of preparation, all of that uh, prepared. And so during the course of the Seder, we've started off by eating something that would be considered to be the lowest of foods, and we culminate on with eating something which is the very highest of foods. But all of that lies ahead of us still. For now, we shall get ready to wash our hands. That's item two, urchatz. And uh, the way we're going to do that is we're going to uh, fill a cup with water, and we're going to pour half the cup on the right hand and half the cup on the left hand, and then we dry our hands, and we are uh, then have fulfilled this agenda item. Why this? Why in that fashion? I am getting ready to tell you all about that in volume two. And I am Rabbi Daniel Lappin. This concludes volume one of how to prepare to present a Seder. Here I am back again, and I'm not going to say I hope you enjoyed that, because this isn't really so much about enjoyment, and it's not so much about entertainment, but it's about, well, it's about feeling the pain, really. It's about training yourself, adjusting yourself, in in order to really feel the pain you're in and to develop enough energy within you to reject it and to determine that change must happen and that only you can propel that change. And so that's really what this is all about. And uh, as I said, you might want to make use of this. I prepared this especially for this purpose. Uh, Even if you don't engage in a Seder with others, but certainly by yourself, you might want to go through this exercise, this annual inoculation against stagnation. So go to the website at rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, head over to the store (laughs) where you will see the How to Lead Your Own Passover Seder resource. And you can read a whole lot more about it there and see if you want to embark on that little adventure. I'm not saying it's fun, but I am saying it is very effective. And uh, I would love to hear from you and uh, hear your reports of, of your experience, how this brought about change in your life as it has in so many others because there are really hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of self-improvement programs and books and courses. They're all all over the place. And the one thing that most of them leave out is that we accept our own reality, because the pain of change is worse than the pain of accepting where we are. The Israelites were happy to stay in Egypt with everything that was going on there because the fear of the unknown and the pain of change 
was too much for them. And that is true in our own lives. As you think about any shortfall in your own life, any area with which you are not satisfied, you will recognize that this is something that um, is caused and brought about simply because of something you have accepted, a reality you have settled into. Now, um, I uh, also want to uh, finish off on a slightly lighter note, um, because I did indicate in the description I would explain this. There's been a lot of talk lately, hasn't there, about the bathroom tissue shortage. And everybody has been laughing about it and saying, like, what are people hoarding? I mean, you know, people are going to say in, in like, you know, 30 years time, somebody's going to say, well, this week we're finally using the last toilet roll that my grandparents bought back in 2020. And there's been a lot like, why are people doing this? Why are people hoarding it? And um, I thought I would spend just literally just a minute or two saying not everything is always as it seems. It's not always the simplest, not always is the simplest guess necessarily the right one. And I actually don't think that we have explained it in the past. Um, I saw a New York Times article in the middle of March uh, where the New York Times spoke about... Uh, they, they mocked everybody buying the stuff, you know. Somebody should tell all these people that toilet paper is not an effective way to prevent the coronavirus. Uh, you know, they're laughing at it. And... Um, and then somebody else in the same article said, look, people are not using any more bathroom tissue than the past. They're just filling up their closets with it. And, uh, and I, I wonder about this. I thought, you know, really, is that true? Are people that dumb? And yes, sometimes we are. And sometimes we do hoard, but then they would go for canned foods and candles and, and maybe even gasoline for that matter. Why bathroom tissue? And I think there is a simpler explanation for this perplexing problem. And I'll tell you what it is. I think the difference is usage. I think right now, people around America are huddled up at home. But what happens normally? Normally, you're out of your house for eight hours a day. You're at work. You're at school. You're at college. Maybe you're driving a, a car or a bus or maybe you're working at a, at a coffee shop. And what are you using when you need to relieve yourself? That's right. You're using a bathroom. And what do you find in that bathroom? Toilet tissue. That's right. And so how much of it do you use away from home during the course of an ordinary week? And the answer is quite a bit. And now because everybody's home... I think a lot of people made a very rational decision. They said to themselves, my use of bathroom tissue is going to triple or double because all of a sudden my family is home instead of at school or work or wherever else they are. And right now, our bathroom at home is going to be used full time. And guess what? The toilet tissue is going to vanish off that roll quicker than I can replace it. And I think that's why it is. Because... Uh, if, you know, right, when you buy toilet tissue for home, don't you sort of tend to, to buy the good stuff? 
you know, you can get double ply or I don't know, maybe maybe it's triple ply, I don't know. Uh, but what, and it's cushioned and quilted and, and it's soft and de delectable. Uh, that's what people, that's what most people do. But what happens with the institutional bathroom tissue that we use during the course of our every... Well, it's a very different story, isn't it? Because it's commercial institutional grade. It's a different product. So it's not as if they could just take all the toilet tissue that was ordinarily going to be shipped to Starbucks and schools and workplaces and just redirect that to the supermarket so you and me can go and buy it there. No, it's a different product. As a matter of fact, from what I gather, it's even manufactured in totally different types of factories. And so that, I think, is the real explanation for why the great toilet paper shortage of 2020 manifested itself. It's a perfectly natural and perfectly normal thing. It's flying off the shelves, not because people are hoarding more. It's flying off the shelves because people are using more. That's how I see it at any rate. And I thought I would rather uh, finish today's show on this slightly laughably absurd topic uh, rather than on the acknowledgement of pain. And, uh, and nonetheless, though, I do recommend, if you would, head over to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, for all the usual reasons, but especially today to read up on the Passover Seder experience um, audio program. It's three audio downloads. You can, by the way, you can have it before the end of today. You can literally download it immediately and away you go. So uh, head over to rabbidaniellappin.com, read about it, see if that's something you want to try in your life this year, or maybe you'll decide to leave it for another time when you're less stressed. But uh, whatever decision you make, you certainly will want to know a little bit more about it, and that would be the way to do it. So until next week, I wish you all good health, take care of yourselves and your loved ones. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.